0: Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
1: Uh, chapter 1 and 2 of Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul shares this great discourse about salvation and the great gospel that gives us, uh, that God gives us through Jesus Christ. And, and towards the end of chapter 2, right, that's kind of movement number 2, Paul begins to transition into the meaning of the church he starts to teach us about the power of the church the meaning of the church and it's really one of the ways that we experience the incomparably great power of god that's what paul says that the church is really one of the ways in which God exerts the working of his mighty strength. Now, in chapter 3 now, we've now moved into the third movement of this wonderful treatise that we've been going on and looking at since the beginning of the year. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts, and he says, For this reason, that's what he says, which means that he's about to explain right, what's next right for this reason all the stuff that he talked about in chapters 1 and 2 the meaning of the church this great gospel leading to the power of church the meaning of church for this reason and then he cuts off he cuts off he kind of diverts our attention and verses 1 through 12 of this of this chapter focuses on the power of the gospel for the church again he kind of diverts and talks about the power of god working through his church and verse 13 paul says so don't be discouraged Because of my sufferings. And he kind of shows how the gospel works through our sufferings. Don't be discouraged as a result, even though I suffer. And then he goes back to verse 14, and that's where we are today. He says, for this reason, what? For this reason, what? For this reason, I kneel before the Father. You know, this is a very passionate prayer. Paul's about to talk about and elaborate on this prayer that he prays for the Ephesians and for God's church, for us this is a passionate prayer to kneel he says i kneel before the father to kneel is always a sign of great emotion great sobriety great solemnity so what you see is as paul thinks about the gospel chapters one to two and as he's reflecting on it as he's recounting the power of the gospel he says i move to pray in a very particular way what's he praying for verse 16 that god May strengthen you with power through his spirit. Now, notice he doesn't pray that you're protected from illness. He doesn't pray that uh, you're protected from poverty. He doesn't pray that you're protected from oppression. He doesn't pray that you're protected financially or economically or politically. He doesn't have to, he doesn't, in fact, he doesn't ask God for anything that has to do with circumstances. So, the three points today are, why does Paul pray this prayer? What does he actually pray for? And how do you apply that prayer? How do you get it, get what he's praying for, right? Why does Paul pray? What's he praying for? How do you actually get what Paul's praying for? First, we're going to look at why does he pray. The readers of this book, the readers of this letter are Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to the church, But this is what Paul is asking, verse 14, that God would strengthen his people with the power of his spirit through his spirit. And why does he pray that? One, verse 17, so that Christ will dwell on your hearts by faith. This is a prayer, that Jesus will dwell on your hearts by faith. Two, verses 18 and 19, that the church that's rooted and established in love will grasp, will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, right? And three, that you would be filled, that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's kind of saying it three different ways, the same thing. But his prayer, remember, Paul is writing to Christians who are reading this letter. He doesn't say, now I want you to get something that's even better than what you had when you first got saved. He's he's saying, I'm not going to, I'm not, this is the new level of Christianity. That's not what Paul says here. His prayer is what? One, that Christ would dwell in your hearts. Two, that you would know the love of Christ. Three, that you would be filled with it. That you'd be filled, right, with the fullness of God, to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now think about this. In chapter 2, Paul says Christians already have Christ dwelling in them. In, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, he says Christians already have the love of God in Christ. He says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You're all these things in Christ, in Christ. That's what he does in chapter 1. So in chapter 1 and 2, he says, you already have the love of Christ. You've already been united with Christ. You already have the fullness of Christ in you. You already have Christ dwelling in you. Why is he speaking to people who already have these things, that his prayer is that you would have these things? And the reason is this, It's very important. It's because at one level, we all have these things. At another level, we don't get it. We haven't experienced it. It's one thing to know the love of Christ, it's one thing to know about it. I know He did this. I know He went to the cross. I know He died for me. I know He came down. I know that He's a king. He came down for me uh, and He went to the cross. I know. It's another thing to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. What Paul's saying is a lot of people in the church, they have the gospel in principle, they have the gospel in theory. They say, I believe this. They say, I know this. They teach what they know, they teach what they believe. But they haven't daily, in a way that it fills them, in a way that it shapes them and changes them, they haven't experienced it. So they don't really know. They know, but they don't really know. In the 90s, a movie came out, Good Will Hunting. Some of you may have seen this movie, Good Will Hunting. Great movie. You got uh, two great stars, right? Will Hunting, Matt Damon. He's got a photographic memory. He's brilliant. And uh, I mean, he's brilliant. He knows math that he hasn't even learned. And, and, he, and he knows he's brilliant, so he's smug and he's proud. And he's sitting in Robin Williams. Robin Williams is this therapist that was assigned to him. He's sitting in Robin Williams' office because he got into trouble with the law and be, because he made a deal that he would have to see this therapist. And this is what Robin Williams says to him. This is what uh, the therapist says to Will Hunting. You don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientations, whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there. You never looked up at that beautiful ceiling. And I'd ask you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more onto the breach, dear friends, but you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap. Watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level with you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Paul says this, it's one thing to know, it's another thing, verses 16 to 19, to really know, to totally experience this in your inner being in a way that you would really get it. And this is why it's so important. This is the first point. Why does he pray this prayer? It's very possible for real Christians to live lives with a, a level, a degree of phoniness, fakeness. You don't even know it. You don't know you're being fake. You only know so much. So there's this level of hollowness, inauthenticity, insincerity, because what you say you know, what you say you believe, what you say you have, in principle, is not something you actually experience. There's this kind of gap, a gap in your day-to-day between what you say you believe and what you actually live and experience in your heart every day. It wasn't that you weren't Christian before. It's what, it wasn't like these people were Christians before. But there's this gap, a separation between what they were in principle and what they experience day to day. There's an incongruity. There's an inconsistency. There's an insincerity. That's what makes us feel fake or look fake. And it leads to this degree of inauthenticity. In ancient times, you had sculptors. These sculptors would sit there and they would work out these marvelous sculptures, especially in that era. The premier artwork was done by one man who was both a painter and a sculptor. And, and you would walk in and you would consign him. You would basically, off, he would offer you services. You would pay for, contract him for services. And, uh, you know, usually, you know, the higher you were, the more you paid. The wealthier you were, the more you paid. And you paid for these great artists the way we do today. And these sculptors, they were never in a rush. They would take their time. And they had tremendous skill, tremendous care, tremendous love. But among them were also many sculptors that didn't care as much. They were there for the dollar. They were there to just make a living. So they didn't have as much love or passion or skill for that matter. They, didn't, they often rushed into things, and when they sculpted something, the cracks would start to show up because they didn't care for what they were making as deeply, and they didn't have the skill to maintain it as richly, and so cracks would appear. And so what they did was to cover over their work, because to scrap it all would be a waste of money. They would actually cover over these cracks by taking wax and molding it into the cracks so that when a man would walk by to you know, purchase a piece of artwork. They would look at it, and they would never be able to tell the difference between something that was a real piece of art and something that had tremendous flaws, lots of cracks covered over by the wax. And so how could you tell? Well, the way you told was you walked into a storefront. It would have a sign on that storefront. The sign bore a certification. And the word that they used was sine sera, which means... Without wax. It's where you get the word sincere. Sinicera, without wax. In our church today, there is a huge issue, big, big issues in our modern church here. We have relationships, people pursuing careers, wealth. This is the wax. This is the wax. This is what we use to cover up the gaps to fill up the cracks. And uh, it shows you know that you're using these things. It's not wrong to be in a relationship. It's a wonderful thing. It's not wrong to have a wonderful career. It's not wrong to be wealthy. But it shows what you're relying on in your life to fill up those cracks in your soul. It shows in how you get into a relationship, why you want that relationship, how you pursue that career, The ways that you're pursuing your wealth How you spend, how you give How you save There's a fakeness, there's a phoniness There's a disingenuousness There's an insincerity in the way that we use Our resumes and our looks And our clothing and our possessions Our neighborhoods that we live in The schools that we send our children to We use all these things to cover over the cracks And Paul says, you don't get it That's what Paul says Paul says, you don't know You haven't experienced the gospel. You haven't set your mind on things above to look at what is important over what your heart is telling you is what is urgent. You haven't experienced the gospel in a way that it shapes you and changes you on a day-to-day basis. Do you see that? See, without real knowing, without real knowing, you don't live a life of gospel power. For example, you're given a huge inheritance you win the lottery you win this large sum of money it's legally yours it's no one else's it's got your name and every dollar bill that was given to you awarded to you there is yours and it's in the bank and yet because you didn't draw on that because you don't appropriate on that you actually live poor maybe you've forgotten maybe you don't believe it maybe you never really verified and validated and checked to see how deep and how high, and how long, and how wide is the wealth that you have. And so you live poor. You have no power, and you have no opportunity. You have not not appropriated from this. Paul says that's exactly where most Christians today are. They have this real inheritance. It's legally theirs. It's been given to them. They didn't earn it, They didn't work for it. It's given to you. It is a gift. You're loved and you're accepted in Christ. Because of the gospel, God's love and his faithfulness is just pouring out on you. You have his love. You have him literally in your life. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have all these things. But you're not living as if you have it. Why? What are you doing? You're living poor. You're starving. You're groveling. And that's why we're envious and that's why we're, we're jealous of other people and that's why we're stingy with our funds. That's why we're unforgiving. We're holding on to our anger and our pride. That's why we're constantly complaining. We're constantly struggling with other people, struggling in life. We're constantly working, working to prove ourselves. Paul doesn't ask God for anything that has to do with circumstances. He doesn't say, you are my beloved church. I mean, Paul loved the Ephesians. And he says, you know, that's why I'm gonna pray that you individually will be free from disease because the plague is running wild i'm gonna i'm gonna pray that you are free from persecution notice he doesn't pray for these things he doesn't pray for their circumstances why because he knows if you have the surpassing knowledge the knowledge of of the love of god the surpassing knowledge that that it surpasses all other things if you have this if you've experienced it you'll be able to handle any circumstance in your life This is more important than anything he says. You know that old hymn? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. That's why Paul prays. What does he pray for? Verse 16, Paul says, I pray that out of glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We're going to unpack this a little bit. What is this? What is the power of God's Spirit in your inner being? It's basically, I'm going to paraphrase it. Basically what he's saying is it's a spiritual, internal, innard, inward, inner, inner, inward sensitivity to gospel truth. That's what he's praying for, a spiritual inner power, a spiritual inward sensitivity to gospel truth. Verse 18, Paul says that you may have power, right, the power of the Spirit to grasp right? To grasp, to get, to know, to own how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. What does that mean? What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's going to give you the power. He's going to strengthen you. That's what Paul's praying for. He's going to prepare your inner being to grasp the love of Jesus. That's Paul's prayer. That's what he's praying for, that you would just know him and love him more, to know the depths and the extent of Christ's love. He says, I want you to grasp it. I want you to own it. I want you to take it in. The word grasp is a very important word. It doesn't happen often in the Bible, not this word in the Greek. It's not the same. He's not, Paul's not saying, I want you to believe this, guys. I want you to really believe it. That's not what he's saying. The word grasp is a word that's used when you wrestle someone. He says, I want you to grab it. I want you to take hold of it. If the Holy Spirit's working in your life and someone comes to you and approaches you, calls you out, he says, You know, I know you pretty well. I'm going to call you out because I see some things about you. Do you feel safe? Do you have the, enough security in your inner being to be grateful? Do you feel safe? Do you feel assured of God's love in that moment? Do you have a desire to grow and mature and change when that happens? Do you accept the truth? You know, all of us accept the general truth that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. We accept the general truth that God's grace is greater than our sin, so greater than we could ever dream. More sinful than you could ever imagine, God's grace is greater than you could ever dream. But do you apply that specifically? Do you take that truth when you bring it in? Does it damage you? You look at the damage that sin has done in your life and you say, yeah, I can accept that. But God, thank God for the gospel. He has redeemed me and made a way to restore me. And so this, calling these things out, it's actually God's grace. God calling, using one of your close friends to call these things out, that's actually his grace. Because the Bible says we're constantly blind, and we want to be blind of these things. We don't want to see these things about us. We want to ignore it, neglect it, push it away, fight it, defend it, prove ourselves against it. The one thing we have not been able to do naturally is to accept it, believe it, pray against it, hate it, to hate our sin. So when the Holy Spirit is actually working in your heart, you don't just hear about God's love. You don't just hear about God's love. You don't just hear about God's holiness. You grasp it. It grips you, actually. Christ's approval, Christ's love, Jesus' heart for you. At that moment, because when you're called in your sin, it's almost like you've been, you, you're taken in. You're arrested. What will free you from that? If it's true, especially if it's true, what will free you? There's nothing at that moment that is going to be sweeter, that is going to be more assuring, more real to you than the knowledge of the love of Christ who forgives and who frees, who sets you free. That Him, He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the coom. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to grasp it. I want you to take it in. I want you to bring it down. I want you to clutch it. What are you clutching? What are you grasping? What are you taking in? That which you clutch, clutches you. What has you? What is taking you in? What has grabbed a hold of you? That's what leads to that inconsistency, that insincerity, That phoniness, that powerlessness. A lot of people, I I know this stuff, but I feel powerless. It's because you're phony. (laughs) That's why. That's why. Verse 19 says, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's talking about a new kind of life. He's not talking about feelings. He's talking about foundations. He's not talking about fruit. He's talking about root. He's saying, if you build on this, if you are rooted in the love of God, if you sense that daily, if you know this daily, if you apply this daily, it will shape your life. It will change your life. You will not be that needy person that you once were. You will not be that that proud person that you once were. And it's hard. I'm a proud person. It's hard to be redeemed of pride, it is hard to be redeemed of arrogance. It is impossible without the gospel. To see the king in his humility sacrificing his life for the proud and arrogant person that humbles you. You see, you will not be as needy as as you were. You will not be as fearful as you were. You will not be as afraid as you were. You will not be as selfish nor self-absorbed nor proud nor envious nor jealous nor angry. You won't be empty Paul says, I pray that you'll be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. He's saying, you know, if you're starving, they they say beggars cannot be choosers. If you're starving, you'll eat anything, right? But instead of uh, going where you normally go, right, Uh, where do we normally go? We go to please our boss because we're starving. We go to please our parents, you know, because we're starving, we go to please that one woman, that one man. That's where the pride comes from because we so desperately want them to see something. We, we go to feed our reputation. You know, when you do all these things, you're starving yourself. You think it's going to fill you. It's actually starving you more. That's why we're never satisfied. That's why it always runs on empty. That's why we're always down. That's why this generation today is marked by depression and anxiety. And instead of taking, you know, what's Paul saying here? You are being taken to a buffet with the best food, Isaiah 55. Come to me and I will basically he says you will dine with me i'm going to paraphrase what he says in isaiah 55 he says i you will delight in the richest affair he says come by and eat but then he says you're going to eat for free right when he says, come by and eat, he's saying, I want you to appropriate that which I already purchased for you. Isaiah 55, come by and eat. Your soul will delight in the richest affair. Everything there in that buffet is good. Everything that you eat there tastes better and sweeter and richer, and it quenches your hunger, it quenches your thirst. That's the love of God. Paul says, I want you to have that. I want you to take it in. I want you to own it. I want you to grasp it. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you get it? How do you get it? I'm going to start by saying some things you know. Okay? I'm going to start by saying some things you know. What did Paul do? How did Paul do it? Well, in verse 14, he says, I kneeled. Paul kneeled. Be sober. Be solemn. Be submissive. To kneel is to be sober. It's to obey. When you're kneeling, who are you kneeling before? The king. But notice Paul doesn't say, for this reason, I kneel to God. He says, I kneel before the Father. There's an intimacy there, right? God's our Father. And so on one hand, there is authority. And there is gravity. That's what you get in a father, a good father, right? But on the other hand, there's an intimacy and a safety and a security. And so what you're left with is a sobriety and a submission. Will you kneel, number one? Will you obey? Number two, he says, verse 16, he says, I prayed. This is what I'm praying for. He prays that you will get it, right? That means if Paul's praying that you would get it, you better be praying that you're getting it right? If Paul is praying for the church to get the gospel, we should be praying to get the gospel personally. Lord, I need this. Show me the blind spots. Show me the cracks. I need this. Ask, seek, knock. He says, ask, right? You'll hear the answers. Seek. You're going to find. Knock, and the door will be opened, right? Make it regular. Thirdly, uh, verse 18, he says, I want you to have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep. Power together with the saints. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm praying not only that you get it, but that you get it together. Community. Church. We're talking about the meaning of the church here. Chapter, since chapter 2, Paul says, you want to experience the power of God? You got to come to church. That's what he says. Paul says, you want to experience the power of God? you got to practice it in the context of church because there is the working of his mighty strength. There is the incomparably incomparably great power of God. You want to experience the power of God? Live out the gospel as the church because the church, it's easy to do it among your friends. You love your friends. They're just like you. That's why they're your friends. It's easy to invite people to your home that you love and care for them, right? And say, I'm practicing the gospel, and you are. But Paul says, I want you to do that in the context of the church where there are people that don't like you too much sometimes and people you don't like sometimes. You don't like their personality. You don't like the way they act sometimes. You, in your heart, the natural inclination is to criticize that person. I'm blessed to hear. Even in our uh, Christian community today, you know, um, we're seeing more and more Uh, sins within the church coming out. We're seeing that. Like in the broader church, not necessarily metro, but broader area of the church. And it should come into metro as well. We see the chauvinism that has existed probably for centuries in putting down women. And today, even the most respected of Reformed, Calvinistic, Presbyterian even, right, if not very, very Reformed Baptist coming forward and saying, I've sinned against our women. Does your respect for those people decrease as a result? No. It actually increases because they're practicing what what it means to be part of the church. And they're able to say, I have sinned. Leaders, parents, we need to practice repentance explicitly. We need to do it. You want to experience the gospel. You live out the gospel as a church. That means that it's the gospel is lived out better in community than it is when you're just practicing it as an individual. Get that in your head. That's that's that should be. You should be arguing with me in your heart because we don't want to believe that. We grew up in a free country where religion, they say, is free, right? They say. Now, the thing is, uh, because it's, it's, when it's free, it's become privatized. It's all about just you and God. But the thing is, the Ephesians were written not to one person. It was written and read before a body. It was meant to be practiced, demonstrated as a church. And that's what the beauty of Ephesians is, that the gospel is better lived out in the context of community than as an individual. Be connected. Be integrated a point where you can't run away be connected and integrated to a point where you can't run away our first inclination when someone calls us out in the church that doesn't know us very well right just by observation is what write them off or walk away right it's a way of retaliation in a very asian and passive-aggressive way right asians they don't like you know, by and large, if you're like a socially normal Asian, right? You're not going to sit there and walk up to a person's face and be like, yeah, right? What you're going to do is you say, thank you for your critique. Ruggerfucker. <laughs> That's what we do, right? That's how we do it, right? And we, what we actually do is we talk to our friends and say, guess what this person said about me? And they're like, okay, like, uh, you know, they kind of agree, but they don't want to tell you they agree. So they kind of just like roll you know roll their eyes at you right behind your back and that's how it goes the gospel calls you against that so we talked about community the fourth thing that paul does outwardly verse 18 he says i want you to grasp that's a wrestling word we said and the actual word in the greek means to sack the person right we all know about sacking right super bowl right we all know what it means to sack to jump on why does paul use that metaphor i mean he could have used a lot of words why does he use that word it's because he knows that your heart is always fighting against that your heart by nature because of our sin is designed to resist god when we hear his word when we hear truth right now in fact right now there's a battle for your heart and that battle in your heart right now even as you are hearing truth is skepticism And truth the reality of how it applies to you and you're battling you know it's true and you don't want to you know you don't maybe you don't like the way it's packaged maybe you don't like the way it sounds to you maybe you don't maybe it offends I don't know right but whatever it is you're resisting it that's the natural tendency of the heart that's not just you that is the natural tendency of the heart right now there's a battle for your heart it's two fathers the old father that says come to me Come to me and reject these truths. And the other father says, Come to me because you know it's true. Come to me. You you are my child. Every struggle, every circumstance, our natural father, the worldly father says, I want you to indulge. I want you to serve yourself. I want you to protect yourself. That's why you need power. That's the kind of power you need. But God the father says, You are a child. You are my child. You want to have power? You need to become weak. I want you to trust your father i want you to submit to your father i want you to give things up then you will truly understand what weakness is and what strength is we don't want to do that and so we struggle we struggle against the word of god we struggle against what the word points to which is christ we struggle against the father we're grasping in that way and so paul says now i want you to sack it i want you to take in this truth i want you to get it if not if not, if you're not struggling, if you're not caring, if you're kind of like, well, I'm kind of like indifferent, and you're not wrestling, well, I mean, think about it. If there is even a struggle, that means God's doing something powerful in you. Right? Some of you are saying, well, I'm constantly struggling. I'm constantly struggling to apply the gospel, and, and then I go, I go wayward. I go left, and I struggle with that. I want to, friends, think about it. If there was no spirit of God, there would be no struggle with God. It wouldn't even be a problem. You get that? It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? God's grace. But if there's a struggle, what do you do? Word, obedience. Paul said, I obey, I kneel, I pray, I join in community. You should these things will act on on your heart in a way that's going to make you continually wrestle with trust in God, trust, love for Christ, maybe even your generosity. These kind of things. There should be a wrestling that leads to obedience a wrestling that leads to prayer, a wrestling that leads to loving other people, working it out, thinking it out, processing. It's only when you understand the gospel that the love of God turns into a powerful reality. It's only when you understand the gospel that the love of God becomes a dynamic reality, a power in your life, working in your life, that you sense regularly and it shapes you daily. Paul says, jump on it, get on it, sack that truth. What's the truth? How wide is the love of God? Though your sins may be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Scarlet was the color of blood. That means, you want to know how how wide the love of God is? Even if you killed somebody, and that person's blood is all over you, you want to know how wide God's love is? He says, you are clean. If Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you are saved by grace alone, then God's love is infinitely wide. It spans everything you've ever done, everything that you will do. You want to know how long is the love of God? We often think, well, as long as I live a good life, as long as I'm obedient, then God will love me. Think about this. If you love God only as long as your obedience is, that's why you fail spiritually, because we're not that obedient. God has given us access not based on your merit or your record or your obedience, but because of Jesus' record and Jesus' merit and Jesus' obedience. And Jesus' obedience is infinitely long. He stepped out of eternity into time and came down. That alone is a long journey. And he journeyed all the way to the cross. There's the length and the breadth of his love. The book of Revelation says the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God, picture the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of, of the world. That means as God was designing the world, before the world was designed, Jesus already died. He knew, he planned it, he designed it. Jesus Christ was as good as dead before the world was even born. You want to know how long is the love of God? It is that long. He's loved you since before birth. He's loved on you since before the earth. He will never remove that love. Because salvation is by grace alone and not by our works, it's not by what you accomplish or what you obeyed. It's based on what Jesus accomplished. And because he obeyed, he lived the life that you should live. And he died the death that you should die. That's the gospel. How wide is the love of God? If you understand the gospel, it's infinitely wide. How long is the love of God? If you understand the gospel, it's infinitely long. It's infinitely long, it's infinitely wide, because it's infinitely high. High, How high is the love of God? What's the height of God's love? John chapter 17, Jesus says, Father, I want them, he's talking about his people, the church, he's talking about you, he's talking about me, I want them to have glory, the glory that we had before the creation of the world. That means to think about this, and we've got to put this all in perspective. Before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world, God, Jesus was as good as dead. That means creation, fall, death of Christ, redemption, already designed. That story was already written in God's heart, right? And Jesus then on the earth as he prepares for his death says, I want you to have the glory that we had even before all this came about. That's the glory that he wants you to have. That's the height of God's love. He's on the cross one of the criminals is crucified and he says jesus today will you remember me will you remember me and jesus says one today you will be with me in paradise right how high is the love of god that's why paul says i'm praying that you will be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Jesus is going to give us the same thing that fills his heart. That's why Paul says, I want, I'm praying that you have that, that you get that. That's everything good that a good friend, a good friend is somebody, when he experiences something, he wants you to experience it. So he just champions it. Good movie, you gotta watch it. Good restaurant, you gotta eat there. I'll go with you next time. Right? We all friends like that. You read a good book, you got to read it. Let me tell you about it. You don't even want to hear about it. He's going to tell you about it because he's a good friend. That's what good friends do, right? Good song, you got to hear it. You don't want to listen to that song, right? That's how it works, right? He makes you listen to it because he's a good friend, right? That's what happens. Jesus Christ's love is infinitely great. Everything that he has that's good, he wants you to have. You want to know how, how high that love is? Everything bad that you could, the worst that you could ever experience is to, is to be separated from God. He says, I'll take care of it. I want you to have everything that I have. That's more than a friend. Why is that love so high? Because it's infinitely deep. Why do you get all these things? Because Jesus Christ gave them up, and that's the key. How deep is the love of God? You want to understand the depth of the love of God? Look to the cross. On the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is his arms are stretched wide. He's suffering long. Right? He's raised high on the cross. And he endures complete separation from God. That's hell. You know what hell is? Hell is complete separation from God. To be forsaken by God from his Father. That means the depths of his heart, where God resides, all the way to the core, tore apart. He suffered from a broken heart, not just because rejected by his friends. Yes, that's hard. But God himself had forsaken him. And he was thrown then, that means he was thrown into the deepest pit that anybody would ever be able to go into. The depths of hell. And did he do it with anger? No. Did he do it with sadness? I mean, he was sad in the moment, momentary sadness. But did he do it with. Sa- Hebrews chapter 12 answers it. He says, He endured the cross, scorned its shame for the joy set before him. He did it with gladness. Jesus went down and down and down, and people were mocking him, yelling at him, tempting him to free himself, and he could have. They were wailing and punishing and crushing, and then God had forsaken him, so the crushing weight of the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, and yet as he suffered, he obeyed. He trusted into your hands and commit my spirit. He was glad to save. That's the love of Christ. There is the width and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. Are you suffering the depths today? Suffering discouragement, loneliness, rejection, brokenness? Only if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ will you be taken to the heights and you will understand the depths that you've been redeemed from. And that means that God's present this power. It's not a thing. This power resides in you. It is dynamic, and it is real in your life. Then you can apply these things that Paul is doing, so that you may know how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. Let that shape you, transform you, build you, and raise you. And you build on that foundation this church becomes a dynamic place. It is. Let's pray.